0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles to Psalm 19? We've been going through the Psalms each week uh, the musicians writing a new song for the next psalm we study and so last week we had a new song written for Psalm 19 and we only got halfway through the psalm and so today we will pick up again um, with the second half of this psalm. Psalm 19, this is the word of God and it is eternally true. Psalm 19, a psalm of David for the choir director, right? The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Who can discern his errors, acquit me of hidden faults? Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. In your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week, we looked at verses 1 to 6. That they begin the heavens are telling the glory of God. And they end by speaking of the sun and saying there's nothing hidden from its heat. And this is what we call the book of nature. And there are two books that God's chosen to reveal himself through one is the book of nature, and one is the, the book of God. This is the book of God. This is the only book of God that has ever been written. Everything in this book is is God's Word. It's filled with God's Word. The Bible testifies about itself that nobody ever wrote of their own inspiration or of their own thoughts or of their own will but holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible says that the men who wrote this only wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They didn't come up out of themselves. They didn't have some inspiration of their own nature. But God inspired them. And so the first half of the psalm is about the book of nature. The book of nature is what everyone who has ever lived has seen. The book of nature is clear to everyone. There's no place you can escape the heat of the sun. In the first part it said that at night you see the stars, during the day you see the sun, the glory of the sun, the glory of the stars. And we talked about that last week. The book of nature leaves every man, I'm using the word man generically to include women, every man who has ever lived has been left without excuse by the book of nature. Because every man who has ever lived has known God through what he sees. Now, this is difficult because we don't want to believe this. We want to act as if the only way anybody can know about God is if you know they grow up with a grandmother that's godly, or if they live in a country that has the Bible, or if they've had somebody preach to them, or if they've read a, a good book about God. But the book of God that every person who's ever lived has is nature. It's the book of God. It's what we call general revelation because everybody has it. And nobody can fail to see the glory of God through the book of nature. Now, I know that we want to start hemming and hawing there. And we want to say, well, that's only if you're a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, you can just believe that nature came to exist. And the answer to that is, no, you can't believe that nature just came to exist. Nobody ever has believed that. Nobody can believe that. Because the book of nature is God saying that the heavens declare his glory, and that there's no language, there's never been a period of time when men haven't known that. And it is so difficult for us to believe that, let alone say it to anybody today. Because everything about this world is conspiring to rob God of his glory. The minute you understand that we, in our own hearts, want to rob God of his glory and take it to ourselves, Everything's going to get clear to you. But if you believe that that people who study a lot are really not trying to get glory for themselves, but are trying to glorify God, and that's why they teach you that there was just some big bang that just sort of happened, and all over the universe there's other life that we haven't discovered yet. And if you can't see how... All kinds of articles you read and all kinds of people you listen to are conspiring to rob God of his glory. And therefore, they deny that they know God through the night sky. They say, I don't see God in the night sky. Just because you see God in the night sky doesn't mean I have to see God in the night sky. And you think to yourself, well, yeah, I guess I can believe that, that other people that look at the night sky don't see God, right? And right there, they got you. Because what you've done is you've relativized truth. In order to get along well with them, you've decided that you won't believe God. (laughs) Right? Because after all, they tell you that they look at the night sky and they don't see God. Well, you know, Anthony doesn't see God in the night sky. I see God in the night sky, but Anthony has gauges and men with gauges don't have the ability of seeing God in the night sky. But if he takes the gauges out of his ears, then... Anthony will see God in the night sky, but, you know, I don't want to tell him he has to take the gauges out. of Yeah, well, you know, look at it tonight, and, and, and you know, we have these meteor showers, and what about in the meteor showers? Can't you see? Take the gauges out. Now, listen, why, why am I making fun of his gauges? Well, you know, I can't help myself. It's because I had a pure steer, and so he has gauges, and it's like, we're blood brothers, right? The reason is that we want to say it's a function of race. We want to say it's a function of nationality. We want to say it's a function of skin color. We want to say it's a function of northern or southern hemisphere. We want to say it's a function of religion. We want to say it's a function of intelligence. We want to say it's a function of... tattoos! We want to say that the ability to see the glory of God is something that God has given us, but He hasn't given to other people. Because that allows us to live in harmony with other people. Because I have my God and he's revealed himself to me and you have your God, you know, people with gauges have a gauge God and people with tattoos a and black people and, and Buddhists and, and pretty soon, you can say I'm a dreamer but I'm not the only one. You see? And everything gets much chilled out. And we can go to IU and the scientists that tell us there was just a big bang. And they don't see God in the night sky. And we say, well, I know you don't, but I'm a Christian and I actually believe in God. And right there, you've given up. Do you understand that? You're done for. Because you've relativized the glory of God and turned it into a personal, transcendent, mystical experience. (laughs) And what have you traded away when you've done that? Well, you've traded away the authority of God. Do you understand that? Because then you can say to them, Well, I know that you don't see God in the night sky, but would you please not be offended if I tell you I do? And you've traded away the glory of God and the authority of God by saying that. And listen, I don't blame you. I don't blame you, but would you please look at yourself? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork day after day, night after night. There's no language it can't be seen in, right? Would you please live by Scripture, Christian? Would you please stop conspiring and being complicitous in the lies of the world? Would you have the dignity of the God that you confess? Would you please be like Paul, who went into Rome, which was uber-sophisticated, and as he went, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God. And he didn't say, to me it's the power of God. So listen, be very careful, because everything about this world is going to conspire to put pressure on you to relativize the truth that God has made clear to everyone. There is no language, no time, no person who doesn't see the glory of God in the firmament and doesn't feel the warmth of his son and doesn't see that bridegroom coming out of his chambers with glory. So there is no such thing as an atheist. There are men who hate God so much that they declare they're atheists. There are men who are such materialists that they accuse God of evil and devote their lives to getting food for their family and their nation and hate God so much that they say the only way to get food for their whole nation is to deny the existence of God. There are men who, den- who do, across history who have demanded that you worship them as God. But there is no such thing as a human being who doesn't know God. Because why? Well, because I say so. I mean, come on. No, it's not because I say so. It's because the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his hand. Day after day, night after night. That's why. Now, that's the book of nature. But that book can't save you. That book can't save you. All that book can do is take away your excuses. Because you will stand before a holy God one day at the judgment seat, and you will give an answer for your faith or for your unbelief. And if you stand as Christopher Hitchens, we have to think, did stand, and you answer to God, I don't believe in you, you know, it ain't going to go well with you. Because God is not bothered. God is God. And God consumes, with his wrath, the wicked. And if you say you don't believe in God, God will look at you and say, what? He'll say, I told you the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And Christopher Hitchens is going to say, well, I didn't see you in the night sky and I didn't recognize you in the sun. And God's going to say, I am not bothered. The heavens declare my glory and the firmament shows my handiwork. Well, I didn't see your handiwork. And God's going to say, What? I am not bothered. Depart from me, you wicked. And God will say to Christopher Hitchens, to anybody that denies that they see God in his creation, God will say, My creation has testified to my character and my nature. Day after day, night after night, not just the heavens at night, but the sun at day, the warmth, if you're blind, you feel the warmth when you turn towards it. There is no language it doesn't speak. That is the book of nature. And you will be held accountable for whether or not you accept the glory of God, which all of creation screams at you. You know, we have such conceit, such pride, such arrogance that we think that if we study something really carefully and can explain some of the mechanisms, I mean, there's no scientist that thinks he understands all of the mechanisms he studies, right? That then we have a certain authority and power over it because we can explain it. But it's a joke, right? Since when his intellect given us power over anything? For instance, take the man that can explain his wife. <laughs> you know, he can tell you that it begins in the kitchen. He can tell you that she doesn't want to solve your, she doesn't want you solving her problems. You know, and you can go on, and you can read a hundred books about marriage and about you know Venus and Mars and all this crud. And let me tell you, when you're done, you don't, under, you don't have the slightest ability to control the thing called woman. You know, you can put somebody in prison. You can have them in a four by six foot cell. You can have them have to reach out of a little hole with manacled hands to take food and you have absolutely no control over them, you know when they get up, you can have a video camera on them. Because we've grown in our knowledge of the mechanisms of God's glory does not mean that we have authority over those mechanisms, let alone the God who made them. We look back at old centuries when people used to write about the fact that, you know, uh, there was a notorious criminal, And he was riding his horse, going from one city to another city in New England. You can read Cotton Mather saying this, an old uh, colonial pastor. And Cotton Mather will write about the fact that this man was a notorious wicked man. He was on a horse, he was riding from one city to another, and all of a sudden a bolt of lightning came out of heaven and struck him dead. And Cotton Mather will just say God condemned him for his wickedness and destroyed his life, right? And then you go into scripture, and you'll read the same thing that Herod didn't give glory to God, and so the worms consumed him, his belly. And and so we study, you know, gastroenterology, you know, or we you know, we study uh, lightning. And we explain, well, you know, back in the colonial days, those ignorant pastors didn't know that there were natural forces that caused lightning to come out of heaven and that they're entirely random. They have to do with... uh Well, I'll stop there. I'm getting out at the edge of my knowledge. Listen, Cotton Mather was no stupid man. Cotton Mather was one of the most sophisticated scientists of his day. So was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards knew more about spiders than anybody in this room will ever know. And is still respected by people that study spiders. I know because I had a guy whose specialty was the dragonfly. And he told me about how unbelievable Edwards' observations of spiders were. And the people that wrote the Bible didn't write the way they wrote because they hadn't lived after, you know, The renaissance, you know, that they hadn't lived after the coming of empiricism. I mean, come on. Because we have the ability of explaining something does not mean that we have authority over it, power over it. Because we have the ability of explaining the origin of a bolt of lightning does not mean that God doesn't send it. That's the reason the insurance industry refers to them as acts of God. It's just the great irony of life today that we still have acts of God, you know? And, and they're things that are too big to be under the control of people. We've denied God, but there's still acts of God for the insurance industry, you know? I mean, isn't that funny? It is funny. You can laugh. Now, the first half of this psalm speaks of the book of nature, and every man, every woman, every child sees it clearly. And the only way you stop seeing it is if you go to school and they beat you out of it. Beat it out of you. All right? The second half of it is called what we call the book of God. And this is special revelation. So you have general revelation everybody sees, but you have special. And this is scandalous. The book of God has always been a gift to a particular people that God chooses to give his book to. And we don't like that either, do we? We don't like the universal nature of God's revelation in nature. And we also don't like the specific revelation given only to a particular people of the book of God, the special revelation. All right? We don't like the fact that everybody sees God's glory in nature. We don't like the fact that only some people that God chooses see the glory of God in this book. You all agree with me on this? Give me your hearts, all right? And so just as we want to say that it is only special people that have a sort of spiritual mysticism kind of spiritual element who see God's glory in the night sky. Now what we want to say is everybody has access to the Bible because we've had it translated into every language. And there's no language, well there are a few people groups, that still, but I mean, you know the trade language of every people group, whatever they use to trade, that has the Bible or most of them. And so Everybody has the Bible today, and so we want to say that you have the Bible if you possess a book that is written in a language you can read. But guess what? Because you can read the Bible in your language doesn't mean you have the Bible. Now why is this? Well, remember what I said this book is called? This book is called Special Revelation. Special revelation only comes to those to whom God chooses to give it. It is true that the words printed on the page of this book are the special revelation. But listen, without the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't begin to understand it, let alone believe it. Notice I didn't say without a good education. Again, Usually, a good education will beat the Bible out of you. Education is only rarely today the servant of the glory of God, especially seminaries. Seminaries are the glory of man, whatever man has written the book that's got the most sales, the most royalties, and brings the most students to the seminary, right? I mean, it's just like the academy. You know, if you've published a lot, you've done good research, you bring lots of students to your department, your department does better. God has set up His special revelation in such a way that the only way that you can read it, understand it, and believe it is if His Holy Spirit works in you and opens your eyes and heart to it. The Bible is exclusive. The Bible is exclusive. And this is scandalous to us, because we may know nothing else about what is right and wrong in the world, but we do have it in our brain that it's wrong to be exclusive. We all know that being inclusive is the very definition of good, of right, of true, of fair. And I tell you that the Bible's exclusive, and immediately everything in you is like, no, 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 no. That's wrong. That's bad. Bad, bad, bad. Cages, you know, gauges, and, you know, we we've got to we've got to learn to think the thoughts that make for a good melting pot. You know, we've got to get along. We've got to go along to get along. And we can't have this exclusive thing. Right? And so what we do is we make the Bible into a book that uh, it's kind of like a uh, it's kind of like a, uh, a Rorschach test, you know. It's something that you know every spiritual person looks in and sees what they want to see, and that for them is the Bible. And so every text of Scripture can be deconstructed. And it's deconstructed by us thinking that because we don't have the biases that other generations had, we actually see clearly what the Bible says and, and we make it into a bunch of jello that bends and you know kind of tastes sweet to us. And when we do that, we don't have the Bible. We don't have God's special revelation. Not at all. Because you never have the Bible until you live looking at it the way David looks at it. Not until, put up verse 7 please. Not until you see that it's perfect, verse 7, restoring the soul, do you begin to have God's special revelation. Not until you see that it's sure, it's certain, it's dependable, and that it makes wise the simple. Not until you see that It's right and that it gives joy to your heart. Not until you see that it's pure, finally removing the scales from your eyes and lightening your eyes. Not until you see that it's clean and that it endures forever. Not until you see that it's true and completely righteous. Not until you have that confession about every word of the Bible, not the concepts the words contain. We're not talking about sort of, you know, the doctrine of Scripture that's sort of carried in the Bible the way uh, Noah and his animals were carried in the ark. You know, no. Every single word of Scripture is what is being spoken of when it says the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. And so you don't have God's special revelation until you love it, until you trust it, until you're devoted to it the way King David was. And you don't show that you trust it and love it the way King David did by being sinless, because you're not sinless. It's a posture of your heart. It's inward. If you try to make your exterior clean so that people will think that you trust the Bible and love it and depend upon it, you'll just be filled with the the grossest, the grossest disgusting dirt. But if you on the outside are dirty, your inside will start getting clean. Now, what do I mean by your outside being dirty? I don't mean going downtown and getting drunk every night. What I mean is that you confess that inside of you dwells no good thing. You never make pretenses to other people. You're humble. When you're humble, you admit your sin, you confess your sin, you live meekly with other people, and that means you're dirty on the outside. You have hair out of place. You know what I mean by that? Hair stands for, you know, your, your clothes aren't perfectly put together. You know what I mean? You know, you're not a beautiful person. You're a humble person who, is, uh, who confesses their sin, who doesn't appear larger than life. You just live. And people see your failures, see your humility, and then they know that you trust and and love the Word of God. Why? Well, because you've let the Word of God diagnose you. You haven't told the doctor what to tell you about your body. You haven't hidden it. You haven't refused to get into the gown. You're just, yes, yes. I'll do it, yep, I'll do it. Okay, yep, that's true, yep, that's true, that's true. And it's even worse than that. If you meet with an elder or an older woman of the church to talk about your sin, and they say one thing to you, you know what you'll do then? You'll say, well, you think that's bad. Let me tell you about this. And all of a sudden, all God's people will be at peace with you. You know? Just be at peace with you. Why? Because you become like them. The Bible and God have glory and you don't. Now you know that because a church says it honors the Bible and has a real big pulpit Bible on the, on the podium doesn't mean they honor the Word of God, right? It doesn't mean that you can go in that church and see that people are saying that the Word of God is pure. That the fear of God is clean. As a matter of fact... One of the best places to deny the authority of Scripture is inside a church with a big pulpit Bible on the podium. Right? We all know this. It was true of Jesus' time, right? Wouldn't it be true today, if it was the church leaders that killed Jesus, wouldn't it be true today that the church is the perfect place to rob God of his glory? Right? Right? And it's a real good counterfeiting device to have a big pulpit Bible on the podium. One of my favorite times in my life was when I, there was this really rich pastor. He had Chippendales in his office. You know, I mean, honestly, if I were to take you to that church right now, all of you would just be going, whoa, the wealth of that church was mind-boggling. It had beauty in its structure. I could have preached in that church, and my preaching would have been respected simply by virtue of the building the height of the ceiling, and not all these noisy ventilators. And they didn't use chemical drums for sound conditioning. This was gothic. This was knaves and and all. And one of my jobs at that church would have been to schedule the gymnasium and also the racquetball courts underground below the gymnasium and all the and I would have been over the 400 boys school in the building next door <laughs> and so in that city to claim to love the word of god was a very profitable business are you with me So that pastor invited me down with my wife. And we were wined and dined and just the smell of the money. You know, I mean, it was, it was everything I was made to be. Right? If I went to that church, I wouldn't have immediately been, but in a short time, I would have been the master of the universe at some other filthy rich church. Because if you make it good as an associate pastor, high up on the rungs, under a senior at a church like that, well, every church in the country that's rich knows that you'll scratch their ears well. And so, I went down there, and one of the things I did is, I knew the pastor. And I knew that he knew the Bible. And so I began to—I I sent away and asked him to send me a bunch of his tapes. This was back in the day of cassette tapes. And I started listening to his sermons. And I started seeing this gap between what I knew he knew of the Bible and what I was hearing in his sermons, you know. And what I noticed was that what he would write publicly for other pastors was right on but that what he preached was sort of right off. You know, it it wasn't painful. There was no pain. So then, being stupid, Mary Lee and I went down to meet with the committee and to meet with the pastor and to get the tour and, you know. It was stupid. It was sinful. We should never have gone. And what I, all of this leads up to this. So you can imagine, the wealthiest section of the city, they own blocks of land in the wealthiest section of the city. And I, yes, it was in the south. Gothic, arc, I mean, it was mind-boggling. I was made for this. The more I was there, the taller I stood. But then, I went into the sanctuary and I went behind the pulpit and i saw that on that high and lifted up pulpit i mean you can imagine how you get preached to in a place like that it has to make you feel like you're important and so they you know you know they speak like this behind that pulpit that high and lifted up pulpit was a brass well polished sign It was about this high and that wide. It was was as high and wide and shiny as a man that would stand behind that pulpit required it to be. And the words on that sign facing the pastor as he went into the pulpit were these words. As a dying man to dying men. (laughs) Come on. Nobody in that church is dying. They're living and living well. No senior minister at that church is dying. He's not preaching as a dying man. What do you say to dying men when you're dying? You always say, repent. Because you're about to stand before the Holy God. There's no more time for screwing around with the deck chairs. On the Titanic, you 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 play. Abide with me. Fast falls the evening tide. O oh Lord, with me abide. And I saw that sign. I've never forgotten it. It was like that sign was a voice of God saying, "Have nothing to do with these clothes stained with sin." And you say, are you saying that rich people are filthy? And I say, well, no, there, there, are, there are some rich people who, because of the power of God, enter the kingdom of God. But listen, any man who wants to be a shepherd of the sheep and chooses to go to a large wealthy church is a fool. Either that or he has unbelievable faith, Right? And it's amazing how every single pastor of rich churches will tell you what unbelievable faith he has. But I'm guessing his wife would be a better judge of it. Right? Listen, there are many ways for churches to have a Bible that's huge in the pulpit and Everything there to the glory of God. Solo deo gloria, you know. That's their signature on their email. Oh, the, everything is right in place, and it's completely clean. And all the disciples say, Jesus, just look at this Presbyterian church. <laughs> and Jesus says, what? What did Jesus say? We never get it. Jesus said, tear this place down in three days, I'll build it up. And we always say, yeah, but that's about the resurrection. He was referring to his own body dying, and then it was the res- resurrection. Listen, the disciples had just said to him, look at this magnificent temple. Jesus said, tear this thing down, three days I'll build. it." Listen, yes, he's talking about himself. He, God does not need a temple made by human hands. You remember that's when they killed Stephen, the first martyr. Stephen insulted their temple. Stephen said God doesn't need a temple made by human hands. He was only quoting Isaiah. Listen, there are many ways for us to make a big show about how we honor the word of God, and in the meanwhile, we tear it down. We refuse to submit to it. We rebel against it. We surround ourselves with teachers who tell us what our itching ears want to hear. We're proud. We're in bondage to our lusts. And we make a big show out of putting a big pulpit Bible and and we give lots of money to the Capitol and we have a big splendid church and all of the, excuse me, excuse me, all of the accoutrements. And there's not a humble bone in our body. And we defy the authority of the word of God. And we choose preachers who will conspire with us to defy the authority of the Word of God. Do you understand me? And you cannot love the Word of God as David loved the Word of God and choose teachers who will scratch your itching ears. Because if your minister, your preacher, your spiritual leader does not constantly drive you back to the authority of the Word of God and tell you to repent. He is not a lover of the Word of God. Do you understand this? Make no mistake about this. No mistake. Make no mistake about this. In America today, our country is filled with religion. It's filled with large pulpit Bibles on podiums. It's filled with people that tell you that they understand the grace of God. And you look at their lives and there is no love for the authority of the Word of God. There's love for, you know, one that's you know, printed nicely. There's memorization of Scripture. You know, there's lots of books on it. And then you look and you say, well, okay, you know, I'm I'm a Protestant. I believe in the Reformation. And Martin Luther and John Calvin and Knox, all those other dudes, those guys feared God. And they stood in an evil day. And I want to stand like they stood in an evil day. Right? That's what we want. We want to think that we honor the Reformation, right? that we're Protestants. And so we think, well then, my church experience, my campus parachurch experience would somehow match that. Somehow. And so we begin to learn about them, and what we learn, and you, you don't have to read much of John Calvin to learn this, is that every time you open up a paragraph of, written by Calvin or Luther, or any of the Reformers, Without fail, they attack the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, he can be talking about the price of tea in China and he'll make a point against the Roman Catholic Church. Really, really, truly. I don't know how many times in Calvin's comments on this second half of this psalm he brings in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, why did Calvin do that? Was it because he was anti-Catholic? No. It was because he loved the Word of God and he saw how systematically the Roman Catholic Church was destroying the authority of Scripture. And so he attacked the Roman Catholic Church because he loved God, he loved the Word, he submitted to the Word, and he wanted to protect souls. And so you read him, It's says again and again and again, what does he principally attack? Well, those of you that were here for Sunday school will have a clue from what Ben taught us they attack the sacraments. They never stop attacking the sacraments. Well, why? Well, you can imagine that when you have a physical thing that you do in worship, it's very easy for us to put our trust in bread, in wine, you know? It's like, I do it. And if I go up there and do it, and if the elders tell me I can come up there and do it, well, that means I'm safe. And, you know, you've got baptism. Well, if I get the water put on me and you know, then I'm a Christian and my sins are forgiven because I can see the water. I got wet. I remember getting wet. I remember the pastor saying the Trinitarian formula over me. So I'm safe. And then I come to the Lord's table. And if I go to the baptism, I go to the Lord's table. And then you're before God. And God simply says, well, were you baptized? Yep, yep. Baptized, and did you partake of the elements? Did you do? Did you go? Yep. Depart from me. I never knew you. Well, what do you mean? It says baptism now saves us. And so, in the Middle Ages, the Church multiplied the sacraments. Scripture only gives us two, but they had seven. Why? Well, because every single one of the sacraments was a way of binding the people to the authority of the church in a tangible way. So you've got confirmation, you've got holy orders, you've got baptism, you've got the Lord's Supper, you've got last rites. I mean, you want to make sure you get in your digs right at the end of life. And then they extended their authority after death. After death! To purgatory. And that's not in scripture, but it's so helpful. Because then what happens is you have souls that are loved by the living that are dead and in purgatory. And so you sell indulgences, and indulgences are the way the church sells the treasury of merit that it claims for itself by works of supererogation. And you say, you know, I don't know anything about all that. I don't know if I can trust you about that. And listen, trust me. (laughs) I almost converted to Roman Catholicism. The church claims that some people do such good things that they don't need how much good they come up with, and that accrues to the church, and the church can sell it Those works are the treasury of merit. And then the church sells works from the treasury of merit to people who have demerits, all right, who don't have that much goodness. And so they send Tetzel out. Now, why did Tetzel have to go out? He had to go out because Michelangelo was painting that magnificent Sistine Chapel. And they were refurbishing St. Peter's Basilica. And they needed a lot of money to have the beauty that they felt was worthy of them. And so they sent Tetzel out, and Tetzel's saying, and everybody admits this is true, the saying was, the minute the coin falls into the box, a soul springs free. Now, is everybody with me? This is not rocket science. It's easy to understand. The church multiplied physical things that they claimed saved you if you devoted yourself to those physical things. Many of them were fungible, okay? Some of you are studying business, economics. And they took those things and said, if you do these things, then not only you, but if you give us money, the souls of your loved ones who are in purgatory will be sprung out. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin attacked at the whole thing. They, they threw over the money tables. They took whips to the people selling indulgences. They nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And every time they opened the Bible, they began to teach against the Roman Catholic Church. Now, that's easy to understand, right? So today all of us are Protestants, right? Most of us. And even the Roman Catholics say it wasn't right to sell indulgences. They agree, all right? So in other words that battle has been won? Has that battle been won? Well, sort of. So today we we have Tetzel going around selling indulgences because everybody lives in the fear of God and they know that their loved ones are in purgatory and they know they need to escape the wrath of God. Is this correct? Is this correct? Do you live in the fear of God? Do you want to purchase the salvation of your loved ones from purgatory after death? Do you tremble for your souls of your loved ones standing before a holy God? It's a joke. That's not our problem today, is it? No. We're not desiring the salvation of our loved ones. We're not thinking that they're standing before God and he's holy and he judges sin. We're not concerned about this. So here's an idea. Let's stop fighting the battles of yesterday and let's fight the battles of today. Now watch, watch what I say now every time you open up anything written by Luther and Calvin and Knox and all of them, you will find them attacking the Roman Catholic Church because that was the enemy of their day. Are you with me? What is the enemy of our day? Our preachers, our parachurch workers, our pastors, our Titus II women, the older women, should constantly be warning us against the battle that is alive today. Right? That's how we know they stand in the footsteps of Calvin and Luther. And may I add, in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus was constantly attacking the moralism and the pharisaical nature of the church. And let's go back to Amos and let's go back to Hosea. Let's go back to Moses. Let's go back... To Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the people that teach us and preach to us today should demonstrate the fear of God we see in all of our heroes through church history, right? And they should be particularly sharp at the point where our souls are in danger today, right? That's where they should have honed their knives. And so... I'm coming over here. And so today, what would Martin Luther and John Calvin speak and warn us about? Where do we hate the authority of the Word of God? Where do we attack the Word of God constantly? Where do we force our rich churches, ministers, to scratch our ears because they itch, right? Of course it's sexuality. I mean, I say this over and over again. Here's an idea. Let's have a preacher that talks about sexuality as much as everybody else does. <laughs> I mean, you know, the world is an orgy of sexuality. It's it's the only thing on the brains of all the talking heads. We have a museum to polymorphous perversion on the campus of IU. I went into the surplus store, and there's a big wooden cabinet with glass walls. And on the front of it, it's the Kinsey Institute, you know, and they're getting rid of one of the things that held their perversions and put them on display for us when we went in there. And then we open up the news page of Google, and what's it filled with? It's filled with sexuality. And then you turn on any television show, any movie. What's it filled with? It's filled with sexuality. And it's not just the issue of adultery and fornication and pornography and skin. It's also filled with hatred for the fatherhood of God. And you say, no, no, no. I've not read anything of hatred against the fatherhood of God. And I say to you, oh, come on. Are you so blind? Every single time that any web article you read, any professor you listen to attacks authority, even the authority of President Obama, it is an attack upon the authority of God because the Bible says there is no authority on earth but what God has ordained. And so we look at sexuality and we see that God made Adam first, then Eve, and that therefore women are not to exercise authority over men or to teach them. And we say, well, yeah, but that's just for the church, right? We've all heard this. That's just for the church. Okay, it's just for the church. <laughs> and of course the country's filled with churches that have women teaching and exercising authority over men. So tell me, precisely where do we today honor the authority of the Word of God? Where does it mean something that Adam was created first and then Eve? Just deep in your heart? At night when you're asleep? I mean, where does it matter? And so what we do is we say to ourselves, you know something... My parents are divorced, my father abused his nephew, my mother had an abortion, I was raped, I'm gonna be a doctor and I'm a woman, I'm gonna be a stay-at-home daddy and I'm a man I'm going to read pornography because I'm a woman. I'm going to look at pornography because I'm a man. I am going to be a libertarian because I don't trust authority. I am going to find a man that I can rule over because I have not had men I could trust. And I'm not going to submit to any man when I've had the grandfather and the father I've had. And listen... Dear soul, I am describing your heart. I am not describing the heart of any other person here, but yours. All of us think we're the great exception to the authority of the Word of God. And what David says is what? The law of the Lord is perfect. Do you honestly want to tell me that with those motivations that are so sinful in your heart, that those sinful motivations lead you to be perfect? Do you think if you spend your life trying to protect yourself from sin, Do you think you will ever know what joy is? Do you think you'll ever have a good conscience if you spend your life protecting yourself from God and his word? You're just going to be another deformed generation like your parents and grandparents were. If you live your life in fear, trying to protect yourself against having this sweet trusting in God's word... If you try to protect yourself by saying, well, I'm not going to give in to the word of God there because this happened to me and this happened to my father and I'm not going to, I'm not, I ain't going to do it. And God will understand. You will not have the joy. Do you see it as, says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You won't have that rejoicing. There was a man in this church for years while the elders and the older women of our church worked with him and his wife. For years. And this man was so sinful. The sinfulness of this man was mind-boggling. And you just keep working with him, calling him to God. And he just is incapable. And one of the things that was saddest about this man was that it did not matter who talked to him. The minute they talked to him, he would speak in a way that would try to pull out of them admiration for him, love for him, attention for him. He was incapable of ever for a moment thinking of anybody but himself. And so you felt like you were swallowing a leech when you talked to him you saw it going in your mouth, you you felt it in your belly, you felt it eating up your insides and sucking them out. And I can remember saying to him right in this doorway, you know, dear brother, would you please stop talking and listen to people so that one time in your life you will have somebody give to you a gift. Do you understand what I'm saying? He could not receive a gift of love from anyone. You know why? Because every single thing that came to him came to him because he sucked it out of you. Did that man have joy? Did he have a heart that was rejoicing? No. Why? Because there was no fear of God in him. There was no love for God's Word. He did not live under the authority of Scripture, starting sexually. Starting sexually. The things he did were things that would chill you if I told you. And yet, those who say the precepts of the Lord are right their hearts rejoice. When you allow God to diagnose you according to his word, there is a peace that comes to you that passes understanding. And it's not peace because the Bible tells you you're a good person. The fascinating thing is that what the Bible starts telling you right at the very beginning is that there's no hope for you. That's, that's the beginning of salvation is when you despair of any hope of yourself. You devote yourself to the commandments of God and it says that it will rejoice your heart. So I'm going to devote myself to the commandments. I'm going to listen to preach. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to come under its authority. And the first thing that hits you is you absolutely are destroyed by the holiness of God that is recorded in Scripture. And you see that when you think you're being honest, there's just so many ways you're lying through your honesty, you never conceive of it. And when you finally feel like you got your hand on bitterness, then you see more bitterness you never recognized before. And when you finally think you're at a point that you're poor enough, you can say you're not greedy, then you realize how desperate you are to find nice clothes at the resale shop. Right? And so, as you devote yourself to the Bible, and it tells you that this will cause your heart to rejoice, you devote yourself to the Bible, and what happens is you despair. That's what happens. Because the more you study the law, the more under conviction of sin you become. And this is the first work of the law. It destroys you. Yesterday, I watched my honesty, because I used to take pride in my honesty, right? Yesterday, I was... I've been following this swimmer thing down in Brazil or up in the U.S., you know, and I'm not going to talk about it, but it's not the way anybody thinks it is. You've got to keep reading about it because it's fascinating. But anyhow, yesterday, this swimmer dude, right, comes on national news and he says, you know, I'm sorry, right, he made an apology. All of you saw this yesterday, he made an apology, right? Did you see this? Okay, he made an apology, right, right? And I thought it was hilarious, his choice of words about his apology. Because what did he say? What he said was, do any of you know, that weren't in the first service, do any of you know what he said? Who said that? Yeah, yeah. He said, I over-exaggerated. Now, think about that. Did you know exaggeration is a lie? (laughs) But he's saying that he over-exaggerated. In other words, he's already accepted the fact that exaggeration is truth. And in order to confess to a lie, he has to say he over-exaggerated. And that's about the relationship you and I have with truth today. We don't ever come under conviction until we over-exaggerate. I mean, it just is such a perfect description of who we are today. And that's just lying. That's not greed. It's not envy. It's not murder. It's not taking the name of God's name in vain. It's not any of those other things. It's just truthfulness. And what happens is we love the word of God Is the first thing is our hearts don't rejoice, our hearts despair. And then what happens? We're driven to Jesus. We realize there is no hope for us cleaning ourselves, but Jesus has to wash us. And so we give ourselves to Jesus. And we say to him, I don't even know how sinful I am, but I already know I'm sinful enough. There's no hope for me. Would you wash me with your blood? And that's the gospel. And so that's the point at which we begin to discover that it does rejoice the heart. Because part of God's law is the gospel. The gospel is in this book. The gospel is pointed to by the lambs that were slain, Nobody thought that lamb would save you. They were pointing to the Lamb of God on the cross. And then we have the Gospels recording Jesus on the cross, and then we have all of the New Testament pointing back to Jesus high and lifted up on the cross. He is our righteousness. And the only way we want that righteousness is when we come under the law law of God. And so when we take Him for our righteousness, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And then we give ourselves to the law again because we want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so the law leads us to Jesus. The law drives us back to Jesus. And the law is what makes our soul rejoice. Do you see this? Now, It's clean. The fear of the Lord is a synecdoche that stands for the whole law of God, the commandment, the precepts. Now flip over. They are more desirable. The more we give ourselves to the word of God and submit to its authority, the more we love it. And we love it more than money. Do you love God's word more than money? Do you love it when it diagnoses you properly? Do you love that more than money? And then, yes, then much money, and in fact, large denominations of bills. And then it's sweeter than honey, and back at that time, honey would have been about the sweetest thing that you could, that you could get. And the drippings of the honeycomb. This is how much we love the Bible. And then it says, moreover, by them, speaking of the, the, the laws of precepts, the commandments, the revelations, by them your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. God doesn't have to, but he says to us that he will reward us for keeping his word. And then it says, who can discern his errors? Isn't this a sweet ending to the psalm? That after talking about the revelation of nature, Then talking about the revelation of Scripture, talking about how wonderful Scripture is, talking about how much he's devoted to Scripture, how much he loves it. Then he says this, who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. In other words, David sees that he can't even see his own mistakes, his own errors. And then he says that he has to have forgiveness for his hidden faults. Now, why are they hidden? Well, they're not hidden because somebody forgot where they were. The reason our faults are hidden is because we try to hide them. And who do we hide them from? Well, we hide them from our wife. We hide them from our husband, our children. But most of all, what? We hide them from ourselves. There are all these excuses we come up with about why we're not accountable and it's not really a fault. And after all, they don't know what my father was like, right? (laughs) Who, acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Now remember, this is David saying this. What are presumptuous sins? Presumptuous sins are bodacious sins. Presumptuous sins are sins that are shameless, sins that we are literally shaking our fists in the face of God. And we say, a woman, a woman at my former church decided to divorce her husband. She said to the pastor, and he told me this, she said to the pastor, a very proud, wealthy woman, she said to the pastor, I'm going to divorce my husband. And God will just have to forgive me. Presumptuous sins. But isn't it sweet that King David says, what? King David says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. I think that's sweet. Because that shows that David is a man like me, right? A man like you. You're not a man, but you're a woman, but you know what I'm talking about, right? And then he says, let them not rule over me. Presumptuous sin's ruling over us. You know, I spent a good bit of time yesterday dealing with young men that smoke dope in our church. And it's like, okay, listen. Dope is a presumptuous sin. And in the middle of me dealing with these, this is a few men, in the middle of dealing with these men, I heard that one of these men says, there's nothing wrong with it. Now, of course, here in Indiana, it still is illegal, right? But you know what else is wrong with dope? What's wrong with dope is that only dopes do dope. If you smoke dope, you become stupid. And I know you wouldn't believe how stupid I was. It took me years to get un-stupid. It doesn't honor God. It's a presumptuous sin. And King David says, let them not rule over me. And I had a young man tell me this week that God spoke to him and told him he must stop. And that's about what it takes to stop smoking dope and drinking alcohol and taking sleeping pills, right? Well, all right, sleeping pills are prescribed by a doctor so you don't have have to have any moral categories in your life for sleeping. There's an ollie olly in free on sleeping pills. Listen. David had to make this prayer. You have to make this prayer. Ask God to keep your presumptuous sins from ruling over you. Okay? Let them not ruin. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Isn't that sweet? You know, it's like, okay, the hope isn't me hopes God. And then, go ahead. Go ahead. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The goal of all of this is that God will approve of us. That's it. Not our mother. Not our preacher. That God will approve of us. The summa bonum, the best good we can get is that God approves of us. And that he doesn't just approve of whether or not You know, Lawrence told me a couple weeks ago that he liked it that I put on my nice blazer. And so, Lawrence, I've been dressing for you the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I don't have my blue jeans on anymore. And do you see my shoes? They're polished. And I bought new khakis. You wouldn't believe how much I listened to you. He didn't mention my pants or my shoes, but I knew that he would approve. I haven't whitened my teeth the way you want me to, but I tried. Listen, I want to... He's right. I won't go into it now because I'm out of time. He is right to point those things out because if I look like a slob, why should you listen to me? But I like looking like a slob. We don't just want our outside clean. Let the words of my mouth, you can make your outside look as clean as you want the minute you speak. Everybody knows what you are. Are You with me? But then it says, the meditations of my heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to my wife. No. Be acceptable to my father? No. Be acceptable to my preacher? Nope. (laughs) Not my grandmother. Acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. All right, one last exhortation from me, one last plea from me. Would you please think about God? Would you please think about God? Don't think about whoever brought you kicking and screaming here today. Don't think about me. Don't think about your mother. Don't think about your spouse. Do you want the approval of God? Do you want the holiness of God? Do you want a heart that rejoices from a clean conscience? Is that your desire? you have to forget everybody. You just have to forget people. You have to learn to live in the presence of the Lord. And if you learn to live in his presence, nothing, nothing can be done to you. Yeah, you can die. Your loved ones can die. You can fall into sin as David did. But David still testified that he was righteous. Why? Because he didn't sin? No, because his hope was in God. And so stop living for other people. Stop fearing other people. Stop wondering what other people think about you. It just doesn't matter. What matters is that the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart are acceptable in God's sight. Not good in God's sight. That's a joke. Just Make the cut, you know? Make the cut. Let's eat. We have the Lord's Supper this morning, and we'll eat at the table together, proclaiming the Lord's death as our hope, and then we'll go home. And we'll love each other because Jesus first loved us. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. The words of institution, we read these every time we serve the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul writes, I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, our Savior took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. We celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, openly, and that means you don't have to be a member of this church to come to the Lord's table. What we ask is that you're a baptized Christian, that you have no hope in yourself but only in Jesus, and that you're a member of some Bible-believing church and not under its discipline. We honor the discipline of other churches, okay? And if that's true of you, come. If that's not true of you, come to the elders and say that you want to join here and come under their authority, the authority of the older women of this church. If you're a woman, we have older women that you can meet with, but we want you to be enfolded in the church so that you're cared for, okay? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for this meal that proclaims the death of your son, that he was obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Father, we thank you that he's highly exalted and that you've put songs and hymns in our mouth and heart about him. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are thy glorious dress. Father, we pray that you will give us faith to come to this table today. That despite the devious hearts and the lying lips and the self. Uh, deception that we practice hiding our sins from ourselves and others. We pray that you will give us faith to come today and to eat with your people. To be humble, to be submissive to your word, and that we will go from this place strengthened to stand for Jesus at Ivy Tech, at IU, Where we work, at home, Lord, change us and make us your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. Now feed us, give us to drink, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.